Hello everyone, and welcome back to A Dark and Bloody Ground. This is a podcast about the folklore, paranormal, and true crime stories of the Ohio River Valley. I'm your host, Bruce, broadcasting from the new Craig Graming Memorial Studio somewhere deep within the haunted Ohio Valley. Before we get started with this episode, if you like what you hear, go leave a rating and review wherever you downloaded the show. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find quality podcasts. And if you have a story that you'd like to share or a question or a comment, you can reach this show at darkandbloodypodcast at gmail.com. So on today's show, we're going to take a look at a story from eastern Pennsylvania. Now that's a bit outside of what is technically the Ohio River Valley, but since Pennsylvania is a state that touches the Ohio River, we're going to count it for the purposes of our show. And the story itself touches on a lot of subjects that are of interest to this podcast and anyone who's listening to it. It has folklore, the paranormal, magic, and murder. It's got everything. But I'll warn you in advance, it's not a story with a happy ending or any true sense of justice. The culprits behind the murder, they were punished, they did spend their time in prison, But as you'll see, the injustices here are not just confined to the murder itself. The main source for this episode is an excellent documentary called Hex Hollow, Murder and Witchcraft in Pennsylvania. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch it for free on Amazon Video. The story goes something like this. Just outside of York, Pennsylvania is a place known as Hex Hollow. Officially, it's called Spring Valley Park, but the name Hex Hollow is far more fitting. This is a sort of cursed land. The forests there are thick, and according to one writer, it's dark even during the day. There are some parts that have never felt the warmth of the sun. It's almost as if the light shies away from the place. It's quiet, but not peaceful. There's a stillness to it, but it's unnatural. Giant black dogs with eyes glowing like red embers hunt the forests and UFOs stalk the skies. And it's said that if you walk just the right path on Halloween, you'll open up a gateway to hell. And at the center of all of this, and in fact the source of all of this, is a house. It's a house that could not look more ominous. The boards are painted black. The window seals and shutters are painted a maroon. And the whole thing is crooked, It's like the evil of the place has warped the building. A devil-worshipping sorcerer said to have once lived there, and is now buried nearby. When he died, it's said that hellhounds came up out of the abyss to drag his soul back down. It's perhaps these same hellhounds that still haunt the forest to this day. A lonely, single headstone marks his life in passing, and it's emblazoned with a pentagram, a testament of his dedication to the black arts. And on some nights, you can find a spirit wandering the hollow and escapee from hell. So, on the very first episode of this podcast, I said I probably wouldn't do much debunking. And here we are on the third episode, and I'm making a liar of myself. Because what I just told you is bunk. Now, I can't say for certain that there's not hellhounds, or there's not UFOs, or there's not some spirit wandering the land. People, of course, have claimed to have seen those things. But what I can tell you 
is that there's no gravestone emblazoned with a pentagram there. And an evil devil-worshipping sorcerer did not live in that house. Because by all accounts, the man who did live there was a good, remarkable man who spent his life in service of others. His name was Nelson Raymeyer, and a great injustice has been done to his reputation and memory in the years since he was murdered on November 27, 1928. And while, like I said, his murderers were tried and convicted, one of them was completely unrepentant and may have gotten away with another murder. Once upon a time, before it was known as Spring Valley Park, or even before it was called Hex Hollow, that area was called Raymeyer Hollow. The area was settled in the mid-1800s by three brothers from Germany who produced massive families. If you watch the documentary, they have a family photo, and there's too many people in a photo to count. And one of these children was Nelson, born in October of 1868. And like most of his siblings and cousins, he spent his entire life in the hollow. So many Raymeyers made their homes there that they lent their name to the place. Nelson was something of a giant, well over six feet tall. By all accounts, he was charming and friendly, if a bit strange. He preferred solitude. Even though he lived most of his life near his family, he found himself a home in an isolated part of the hollow. On his small farm, he, he grew potatoes, kept a small herd of livestock, and hunted game with a rifle that still fires to this day. At age 28, which was late for those days, he finally took a wife, a squeaky-voiced girl named Alice, who was 10 years younger than him. And eventually, they had two daughters, Beatrice and Edna, and it appears that Beatrice and Edna may have come along later in their lives. Four years before Nelson's death at the age of 60, they were still living at home. Everyone that knew Nelson described him as a kind man. He had this wonderful reputation in his community and beyond as someone who would do anything for anyone in need. It didn't matter the trouble or the problem or whatever. He was there and he was going to help you. And it was said that when Nelson arrived or when you were in his presence, he just made everything better. But he was so willing to help others, it caused strife in his marriage, and it was ultimately a detriment to himself. Not a single person had anything bad to say about him. Well, well, that's not exactly true, because we wouldn't be telling the story otherwise, would we? But he was a good person and completely undeserving of what was to come to him, either in his murder or what happened to his reputation in the years afterwards. Though a farmer, Nelson was best known in his community as a practitioner of powwow, and he was thought to be one of the greatest practitioners of powwow doctors living at his time. Powwow is a sort of faith-healing tradition that blends Christian mysticism and old-world folk beliefs. There are similar traditions throughout the Ohio Valley, particularly in Appalachia, where you have things like conjure magic or Appalachian voodoo. Powwow was originally brought to the Americas in the 1600s by German Protestant immigrants. Originally, it was called Broker, but by the 1700s, the name Powwow had been adopted from neighboring Algonquin peoples, and that somehow became the more common term. Broker is still used today, but it's very rare. The practitioners refer to themselves in a variety of names, such as Brokuri, Powwowers, Powwow doctors, or Hexenmeisters, which literally translates to witch master, but it's more commonly translated to mean sorcerer. 
For our purposes, to make things simple, we're just going to call them powwowers or powwow doctors. Powwow doctors are, are a sort of faith healer, minister, ritual magician, and folk doctor all rolled into one. They use a combination of prayer, folk remedies, the laying on of hands, and minor rituals to aid those who come to them for help. And people come to them for everything, from removing curses, or helping with sick livestock, or an earache, or the tooth infection, things like that. And this wasn't necessarily just some weird backwoods thing, some hermit off by himself practicing this or believing in this. The belief in powwow was prevalent among the rural Pennsylvania Dutch. Every community had a powwow doctor or several, and the belief was so prevalent and so strong that people trusted their powwow doctors more than they trusted medical doctors. Outsiders often viewed it as devil worship and the practitioners as witches, particularly in the time after Nelson Rymeyer's death. But this could not be further from the truth. Each powwower sees themselves first and foremost as Christians. None see themselves as having any sort of magical power or anything of the sort. Rather, they see themselves as a conduit for the love and power of God and Jesus. No powwower would be caught practicing without his Bible. And second only to the Bible was a book called, now this is a mouthful, The Long Lost Friend, a collection of mysterious and invaluable arts and remedies for man as well as animals. This was originally published by a German immigrant named John George Hamann in the early 1800s in Pennsylvania. It's full of prayers, protections from witchcraft, charms for good luck, remedies for animals, and tips on farming. Now, this isn't some sort of dusty, worm-eaten, magical grimoire that you can only find in the restricted section at Miskatonic University. It's been widely available and continuously published since the early 1800s. Just about everyone in the Pennsylvania Dutch community would have had a copy. In fact, I have a copy sitting right here on my desk, which you can... That's me waving it. And here are some examples of the things you can find inside. To make sure your cow return home, you pull out three bunches of hair, one from between their horns, one from the middle of their back, and another from their tail. And then you make the cattle eat it in their feed. To heal burns, the book says, pound or press the juice from a male fern and put it on the burnt spots, and they will heal very fast. Better yet, however, smear the above juice upon a rag and put it on like a plaster. To win every game of cards you play, the book instructs you to tie the heart of a bat or with a silken string around your right arm, and you will win every game of cards that you play. No bats were harmed in the making of that charm, and I think that heart of a bat here refers to a type of root. Now, I can't say whether it's ethical or not to use charms when you're playing poker, so use that knowledge wisely. Nelson was so trusted as a powwow doctor that people were lined up outside of his home at all hours of the day and night, and he never turned away a single person. However, the constant stream of people in and out of their home was too much for the long-suffering Alice to bear. After several decades of marriage, they finally separated. In 1924, she moved herself along with Beatrice and Edna to her own childhood home, which was just over the hill from Nelson's house. That childhood home, by the way, is still standing today, and it's painted a bright pink color. But despite the separation, they remained amicable and still cared deeply for one another. Once a week or so, they would meet on the hill between the homes and exchange laundry. Nelson would bring his dirty laundry, and she would return to him the clean laundry. 
It was Nelson's reputation as a powerful powwow doctor that brought him to the attention of John Blymeyer. Blymeyer was an unfortunate soul. At a young age, his intelligence was tested and found to be below a normal cognitive level. His lawyer, during the murder trial, referred to him as having the, the body of a man but the head of a child. That wasn't a comment on his physical appearance, but his mental state. He spent his time in and out of institutions and was diagnosed as being neurotic and suffering delusions. Perhaps owing to his limited intelligence and his mental illness, Blymeyer was barely capable of holding down jobs or relationships. He lived more or less as a drifter. He did marry, but was often separated from his wife. They had two children, but both died at a young age. During one of these separations from his wife, Blymeyer had an affair with a 16-year-old girl named Gertrude Rudy. She was under half of his age. In 1927, Gertrude was found murdered on some railroad tracks, killed with a shotgun blast at close range. Blymeyer came from a long line of powwowers, and himself was a powwower, but he had nothing like the reputation of Nelson. And unable to make a living that way, he took a job at a cigar factory in New York. For his entire life, Blymeyer claimed that he was followed by witches, and was convinced that all of his misfortune was due to a curse. Now, I'm unsure of what the triggering event was, but eventually the constant misery became too much for him to bear. And so he sought out a woman named Emma Knopp. Nowadays, she's known as Nellie Knoll, or the so-called River Witch of Marietta, Pennsylvania. Nellie was a well-known powwow doctor herself and looked every bit the part of a cartoon witch. Blymeyer met with Noel six times to discover who hexed him, and for each session he paid $5, which is about $60 today. Nellie had Blymeyer place a dollar bill in his palm, and when she removed it, she told him that he would see the face of the witch who cursed him. And that face was Nelson Rymeyer. Often in the retellings of the story, Nellie Knoll is cast as, well, the witch, that she had some nefarious, malicious plan, and that she set Nelson Rymeyer on this course. Now, I find no reason to suspect that she had any malicious intention, or that she was responsible in any way whatsoever for anything that happened. There's nothing to suggest that she was manipulating Blymeyer. Blymeyer suffered severe, untreated mental illness. And Nelson would have been known to Blymeyer through the powwow community. So he was just as capable of placing the blame on Rymeyer as anyone. Probably more so. Whatever the case may be, Nelly told Blymeyer that in order to remove the hex, he had to take a lock of Nelson's hair, bury it eight feet down. Then, he had to take Nelson's hex book and burn it. Convinced that Nelson was a powerful witch, Blymeyer knew he was incapable of confronting Nelson on his own, so for this, he recruited 14-year-old John Curry. Like Blymeyer, Curry had experienced tons of hardship and misery throughout his short life. His father, who apparently doted on John, died when he was five. His mother remarried a perpetual drunk that beat John. Curry fled from home at a very young age and started working at the same cigar factory where Blymeyer worked. They struck up a friendship 
and Curry would testify that Blymeyer had saved his life with the power of powwow. The exact circumstances of how he saved Curry's life are unknown. However, there's a story told that one night when they were leaving work, they were approached by a rabid dog who was snarling and foaming at the mouth and apparently ready to attack them. Blymeyer calmly approached it and reciting a powwow prayer, turned it away. So whatever the real circumstances were, Curry owed Blymeyer a debt and would do anything he was asked to repay it. And somehow, Blymeyer and Curry came in contact with a farmer named Milton Hess. The Hess family was suffering a streak of bad luck, too. Sickness was rampant in the family, and their cattle were wasting away. There was a dispute with a cousin that had something to do with the right-of-way of cattle through farms. It's, it's kind of confusing, but it was causing great strife within the extended family. Hess and his wife were convinced, either because of Blymeyer or through their own superstitions, that they were cursed. And Blymeyer knew the culprit. Blymeyer somehow convinced them that Nelson was the culprit. So, on November 26th, Hess's son Clayton drove Blymeyer and Curry to Rymeyer Hollow. And for some reason that I cannot comprehend or that has been explained in any of the sources that I've watched or read, he didn't drive them all the way there. At some point, they stopped along the road, and Blymeyer and Curry walked the rest of the way. First, they stopped at Alice Rymeyer's house. Now, I'm not sure if they knew that was Alice's home or if they just stopped at the first house they came to. Either way, they asked her if she knew where to find Nelson, and she directed them over the hill. This stop would end up being their undoing and would very quickly lead to them being imprisoned. It was late when Blymeyer and Curry arrived at Nelson's, but despite the late hour, he was happy for the company and invited them in for a drink. At Nelson's kitchen table, they had a friendly discussion about local news and, and farming, and then Nelson invited them to stay the night because it was so late. And the next morning, he cooked everyone breakfast before they left. The whole time, he was completely unaware of the danger he was in. I'm sure that Blymeyer had intended on confronting Nelson that night. But Nelson, even at 60 years old, was still a massive, strong man. So, when they got one look at him, they had to change their plans. Blymeyer knew that he and a scrawny 14-year-old were incapable of physically subduing this man, should he not give in to their demands. They needed more muscle. So for this, they returned to Milton Hess and asked him to lend the help of his other son, 18-year-old Wilbert Hess. Why Wilbert and not Clayton, who was already part of the gang, so to speak, I, I don't know, but we're not dealing with criminal geniuses here. Milton's mother commented that although Wilbert was still needed on the farm, it was worth missing a day of work to help lift the hex plaguing their family. Wilbert, for his part, was not a willing participant. I don't know if it's because he didn't believe in it or he just wanted no party to what was about to occur. So he went along reluctantly, but made it very clear his objections. That night, the 27th, Clayton, still driving, drove his brother, Blymeyer, and Curry back to Ray Meyer's Hollow. And again, for reasons I cannot comprehend, he didn't drive them all the way. 
even though the road, even in those days, runs right next to Nelson's house. And when I say the road runs right next to the house, I don't mean that there's the road, there's a yard, and then there's the house. I mean, you take a step off the front porch, you'll be in the road. But for whatever reason, they stopped along the way and they hoofed it the rest of the way through the forest. Nelson was already asleep when they arrived. And when they woke him up, Blymeyer used the excuse that he had left something behind the night before. Nelson, being the sort of person he was, wasn't about to turn them away, and so invited them in to look for it. When they went to the kitchen to look for the item, that's when Blymeyer started accusing Nelson of being a witch and demanding a lock of his hair and his hex book. Nelson was confused and taken aback by this. He wasn't a witch. He was a good Christian man, and he wouldn't know the first thing about cursing someone and he didn't even have a hex book to give to them. He wasn't about to let them take a lock of his hair, because even though he wasn't a witch and he wasn't in the cursing business, he knew that a lock of hair could be used to hex someone. Blymeyer ordered Curry and Wilbert to hold Nelson down so they could cut his hair, and that's when a big fight ensued. And for a time, Nelson held his own against the three. But it all came to an end when Blymeyer broke a chair across Nelson's back, pro-wrestling style. This put Nelson on the ground, and when he was trying to pick himself up, Curry took a piece of wood that was stacked beside the stove and hit Nelson in the head. The blow was so brutal that it opened up Nelson's skull and exposed his brain. But the man would not die. So Blymeyer put a noose around his neck and strangled him to death. Then the three began tearing up the floorboards of the stairs to the basement of the house, Somehow they knew Nelson kept money hidden in tin cans beneath the floorboards. If it were not for Blymeyer's delusions and his later statements, I would be willing to believe that the true motive was just a robbery and that the witchcraft stuff was just a, an excuse to drag along some desperate accomplices. Blymeyer dumped lamp oil on Nelson's body, then set it on fire, hoping that the flames would consume both the body and the house, covering up the crime. As the trio fled the house, supposedly they looked back, and they could see Nelson standing in the flames struggling against his bonds. Once the three fled the hollow, they went their separate ways. Wilbert, when he returned home, told his mother, I didn't want to go down there. I didn't want to do what those men wanted me to do. But I did it, and I hope it makes things better. The next day was Thanksgiving. A neighbor happened to be taking a walk after dinner and noticed that Nelson's livestock were still locked in the barn late in the day. He instinctively knew that something was wrong. On the way up to Nelson's house to check on him, the neighbor ran into the mailman. I guess they delivered mail on Thanksgiving back then. And the mailman told him that Nelson didn't come to the door for his mail. So for some reason, instead of going to Nelson's and checking on him, the neighbor went to Alice's home and told her that he thought there was some trouble. The police were called, and they found Nelson's body in a grotesque display. Somehow, the flames had only burned his body and the floorboards right beneath his body. I don't know if this was due to some stroke of luck or due to the incompetence of the criminals involved, but nothing else in the house burned. But those floorboards gave away, and Nelson's body fell through them, getting caught on a floor joist in a potato bin. 
is just kind of dangling there midair. And this is one of those things that was used later on to malign Nelson. It was said that the house didn't burn because of the incompetent criminals, but because it was the devil coming up to claim his own. Somehow that prevented the house from burning down. But like I said, it was probably due to incompetence more than any supernatural cause. It didn't take long for the police to pin this on Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess. Alice knew exactly who had done it because of that visit on the 26th. Nelson was laid to rest on December 5th. And as a testament to the man's impact on his community and how well-respected and loved he was, hundreds of people turned up to pay their respects. The service inside the church was standing room only. The church had to open the windows so all the people outside could hear the service. At Blymeyer's trial, the judge ruled that no evidence would be allowed regarding powwow, hexes, witchcraft, or anything of the sort. The prosecution attempted to build a case that the murder of Nelson Rymeyer was a robbery gone wrong, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was. However, during cross-examination by the prosecution, driver Clayton Hess brought up the witchcraft angle. And I don't know if this was intended or if it was a slip on his part, but whatever the case may be, this allowed Blymeyer's lawyers to use powwow in their defense. They argued that Blymeyer's belief in the practice was so strong that it amounted to insanity. The jury didn't buy it. They returned a conviction of murder and handed Blymeyer a life sentence. During the trial, the judge asked Blymeyer if he had anything to do with the death of Gertrude Rudy. Blymeyer wept and wailed at the accusation and loudly proclaimed his innocence. The judge vowed that if he found out Blymeyer had anything to do with the murder, he would make sure that Blymeyer saw the chair for it. Blymeyer was completely and totally unrepentant over the murder. So much so that he was convinced that he was right and he was shocked at the sentence. When the jury handed down the verdict, he looked at his lawyer and said, The witch is dead. I can eat and sleep now. But... I think they went a bit strong. John Curry's trial lasted less than a day. According to one expert on the Nelson Rymeyer murder, it was the quickest murder trial in Pennsylvania history. Curry's lawyers argued that he was the victim of both societal neglect and parental abuse. One lawyer pointed at his mother in court and accused her of being the true culprit behind the crime. She fainted. The jury had no sympathy for the abuse Curry had suffered at the hands of his parents or of his manipulation by Blymeyer. He was convicted and given a life sentence as well. At his trial, Wilbert Hess's lawyers compared him to Abraham's son upon the altar. He had committed a heinous act, but not one out of malice. Instead, it was out of duty to his family. And most importantly, most importantly, he was willing to forfeit his life and freedom out of love for his mother. This resonated with the jury. Though, they, though he was convicted, Wilbert was only sentenced to 10 years in prison. The murder and the resulting trials created a sensation around the country. Newspapers coast to coast carried daily updates of the proceedings. This created a backlash against powwow, which was already crashing against the progress of the 20th century. Misreporting in newspapers, whether intentional or not, and I suspect 
that probably was intentional, portrayed powwow as witchcraft and deviltry. Belief among the people eventually withered away. Today, there's only a few powwow practitioners left. Where belief dwindled, misconception has risen in its place. Over time, Nelson Raymire became remembered in legends, not as a kind gentleman who dedicated his life to helping everyone around him, but as a devil worshiper casting hexes upon his enemies, someone whose very presence cursed the land around him in both life and death. John Curry was paroled from prison after about 10 years. He joined the military and even served on General Eisenhower's staff during World War II. After the war, he bought a turkey farm and became a talented painter. Those who knew him after his time in prison described him as a kind, caring man, and it was hard for them to believe that he could ever beat a man to death. He passed away at the age of 49. Wilbert has served his full term, and he was the only of the three men to do so. After prison, he left a quiet, unremarkable life and died in 1979. Blymeyer remained in prison for 25 years. After his release, his brother met with him one time and said that Blymeyer had not changed one bit. He did not possess a single ounce of regret over any of his actions. If he had the chance to do it all over again, he'd still kill Nelson Rymeyer. Blymeyer's family, for their part, believed that he did kill Gertrude Rudy, probably to cover up a pregnancy. They point to his shotgun going missing just after the murder as proof. This is where we probably find the only true justice in the story. Blymeyer's family, after prison, would have nothing to do with him. He led a life of almost complete isolation for the rest of his days. When he finally died in 1972, no one came to his funeral. Nelson Rymeyer's house still exists to this day. His grandson has converted it into a museum, recreating how the house would have looked when Nelson was still alive, and filling it with artifacts from his life. A spell probably won't help you at cards. And no hex is going to make you lose your job or make your livestock sick. But magic still possesses a power. For those that believe, that truly believe, that belief has the ability to influence their actions and change not just their lives, but the lives of the people around them, whether it drives them to help those in need or commit murder. And that way, magic is very much real. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of A Dark and Bloody Ground. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll come back next week when we'll have another strange story from the haunted Ohio Valley. If you liked what you hear, go leave a rating and review wherever you found the podcast and share it. This will all help grow the audience and grow the show in turn. If you have a story that you'd like to share, or a comment, or a question, or anything of the sort, you can email me at darkandbloodypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to see the show notes or the sources for this episode, you can find them at darkandbloodyblog.home.blog. The music you heard in this episode, the intro, the outro, which you're hearing now, are all by Hunter Quinn. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next week.